Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Proud to Work in Cannabis podcast. Today, I'm really, really excited because I was looking at our data. I've been looking at our Proud to Work in Cannabis downloads, and I noticed that Safira's episode was getting a lot of downloads, and it was months and months old, and there's been so much that has changed. So I'm super happy to have Safira, who is the executive director at the National Cannabis Roundtable. She has been all over the country, spending a ton of time in D.C., and she's going to give us a full overview on what is happening in the world of cannabis legislation. Safira, it's so good to see you, and thank you for coming back onto our podcast. Well, thank you, Carson, for having me. And I, I will say, I was trying to remember when we did record that to try to pick up where we left off, but then I realized it doesn't really matter when that was because the dynamics in D.C. are such that what we know today is what we know. And tomorrow or next week, we may have to do this again. Um, it really is keeping up with a wildly whipping changing of facts and circumstances and politics and policy and personality. But I do think we are headed in the right direction. Yeah, we, it was Q1. So when we did it, the, 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 we were kind of saying like, man, a lot of people were saying last year was such a disappointment. And you were saying, well, listen, we were the most talked about at the party and, you know, kind of talking about how there was still optimism. But at the time we did it, everybody was like, oh, my God, is anything ever going to happen? <laughs> well, and I actually think it's a great starting place because one of the things I have realized with so much humility and kind of reality is that outside of D.C., whether it's cannabis or not, people measure progress and success differently. And inside D.C., we measure progress and success that is you know, relevant to how much, um, how much movements uh, an effort has, has made. So like, for example, when, when I came in in Q1, we said being talked about is actually important because it's basically where we're in the mix. So I, last night I was um, at an event with Senator Gillibrand. And you know, one of the things, and I'll, I'll kind of give the, the, um, the end, you know how when you're reading a book, what's, okay, what's the last thing? You, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do that first, and, but we're gonna, I'm gonna talk a little bit about, about the way forward on that, particularly around, and we're talking about legislative now, because I think we have to talk about, about the legislative side of progress and the administrative side of progress. So I definitely wanna talk right now about the legislative side and say thanking. And one of the things that Senator Jilla Brown said is that, you know, we are now, safe banking and cannabis, in what we call the short list of priorities. So that when there is a must pass, and whether that happens at the end of this year or even into next year, we'll talk about some of those vehicles, we're gonna be in that short, you know, we'll call it deck of cards. And that is very, very difficult to get to. And, and, and given what we've accomplished, um, again, I'll unpack this a little bit more with a recent, um, I'll use the word success out of Senate banking, we have checked the boxes of having done that via regular order, which has been a prerequisite for the Republican support that is going to be a necessity to get this um, in, you know, through the next throes of, of progress. So I'll pause there and we can break that apart a little bit, but that's kind of the overview. We're in the room. We're not on the menu. <laughs> at the table. I like that. I like that analogy. For people that potentially haven't been following as closely, can you just walk us through what's happened over the last, I guess I would say two months um, when, when, when cannabis made the yeah, yeah. mainstream media again? Yes, yes. So, you know, folks that have either, you know, been in cannabis a long time or are kind of new to watching cannabis, the, the folks will know that the main piece of legislation on the move in Congress is the Safe Banking Act or 
uh, as it was introduced uh, most recently in Senate banking, the Safer Banking Act. Um, and the, the reason that that was so relevant is that while a Safe Banking Act had passed out of the House uh, seven times um, in various forms, it had never formally been considered in the safe in the Senate Banking Committee, um, and so it, it hadn't really ever had kind of its day in in in, in court, so to speak. Yes, we've had a hearing. Um, we had a hearing a, a few months ago on the kind of the merits of the bill, and we had some folks kind of speak in favor and folks speak against, but. What, what you're referring to, which has just recently happened, actually, the end of September, was a formal markup in the Senate Banking Committee on Safe Banking. And I have to tell you, for listeners who wonder whether or not, it's a big, whether or not that is a big deal, the Senate Banking Committee has marked up two pieces of legislation in the last five years. So what that means is only two bills proposed have made it out of the Senate Banking Committee in five years. And ladies and gentlemen, friends and foe, cannabis was one of them. <laughs> that's crazy. In five years, only two. I never. I did yeah. not know that. Yeah, and that's really significant. Why is that? Well, it has to do with the way... Policy is prioritized in D.C. It's, it's. I wouldn't say it's. You know, understanding the way that some of these lawmakers think is completely above my pay grade. But for cannabis, I know the way they think. So why is it important that we got out of Senate banking? So I want to remind listeners to go back to Schoolhouse Rock and the later iterations of how many votes it takes to become a bill in the Senate, or at least to get out of the Senate. We need sixty votes to be filibuster proof, and right now. Cannabis has nine Republican, actually eight Republican co-sponsors, but in terms of our, uh, I said, well, actually nine Republican co-sponsors, but we absolutely are going to need to get to 60. And we have additional, we have additional yes votes that are not co-sponsors. We've heard from Senator Tuberville. We've heard from Senator Schmidt. So the votes are there, but the magic number in the Senate is 60. But for that group of Republicans whose votes we absolutely need to get out of the Senate, they required, that group of Republicans required that we go through something called regular order, which means they require that there is a hearing on the bill in the Senate, a markup on the bill in the Senate, and now it would go to the Senate floor to be voted on. Great news is hearing, Senate banking, check. Second great news, markup, Senate banking, check. So now the bill is in Leader Schumer's hands and he controls the gatekeeping to the Senate floor, and that is where we are currently postured in his hands to be considered on the Senate floor. One question I have, and I just don't know if this is ever the case, and so you said that we have nine Republican votes. Is it a guarantee that we will get all the Democratic votes, or is there ever times when yeah. Democrats say no? It's a great question. So if folks who watched the, the committee vote, Senator Warnock, uh, was a Democrat and actually voted against safe banking because it lacked, from his perspective, the, the requisite criminal justice provisions and broader reform. I think we should expect that we have um, a Democrat or two peel off. I think it depends on whether there are some additional provisions um, added to safe banking, but it's this very delicate balancing act because unless we keep a, you know, when I say we call it skinny safe, 
meaning a fairly narrowly tailored piece of legislation, then we lose the prerequisite Republicans who are looking to vote on a banking bill, not a cannabis bill. Mm. That is the balancing test. Okay, so now the bill is in Schumer's hand. What do you think will happen? Like, what do you, how does the story, where does the story go from here? Yeah. So now we have to step out of the world of cannabis and look how cannabis is at the mercy to other things in Washington and now, obviously, world events, which is just all such a tragic thing. And, you know, if we would have been having this conversation last week, I wouldn't have been talking about what happened on Friday night. So it's really heartbreaking to think that that is now part of what we have to think about as a, as a country. And for folks listening, we're recording on October 11th, obviously coming off of the horrific events that happened in Israel over the weekend right. for, to put context. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that to make this a little bit more evergreen or at least evergreen within a, a time frame. So putting that aside as being you know, a, a primary concern of our lawmakers, the other thing that is kind of going to play into progress is the annual spending bills. So folks read in the news that, um, and obviously the calendar for the federal government um, is a, it's a, it is a October 1st, September 30th. And because our spending bills, we did not get our spending bills, uh, not we, Congress did not complete its work on the 12 appropriations bills, it passed what they call a continuing resolution, which basically kicks the can down the road and gives them more time to work on the spending bills. How much more time do they get to complete those 12 bills? Yes. So it is right now, the next continuing resolution is giving them until November the 15th. But Carson, it is not uncommon in DC that they don't, they need more time and then they just pass another continuing resolution. It's just basically Congress um, um, uh, giving themselves kind of a, an extended extension. They're giving themselves a homework extension, frankly. <laughs> um, and they can do that as long as they need to. Um, if they don't do that, the government shuts down. But as we saw in this last case, the, the current, they call it a continuing resolution, which is basically using last year's budget you know, kind of going forward. So they have until November the 15th. But what that means for Cannabis Carson is that Senator Schumer cannot use the Senate floor to talk about the cannabis bill because he's having to talk, he's having to talk about appropriations bills. And that's where we serve at the mercy of broader political reform. Now, um, it can move more quickly or slowly, but right now the Senate is, appropriate, is focused on its appropriations work. And also to make this more evergreen, in another historic event last week, we saw our Speaker of the House being ousted. How, how does that play into cannabis, if at all, other than just slowing yeah. things down? Yeah, and, and I will tell you, this is, is real time as it gets. I was having a conversation, and, and, and we had like our talking points in like hour, the beginning of the hour, and so much had changed by the end of the hour that we're like, oh, okay, new information, folks. So just to let you know, that's, that's the way the wind is in D.C. Um, so as you mentioned, right now, the House of Representatives is operating without a speaker. They have an acting speaker in Patrick McHenry, who was the chairman of, of House Financial Services. It's comparable to Senate banking. Um, he, but he's not formally there. He's just acting. So the reason that this is key is that the House cannot do its business unless it has a speaker. So it's paralyzed from progressing on house business. That can be appropriations, that could be you know, international relations, which as you can imagine, that's like top of mind to get a speaker in place. And, and 
and, and McCarthy, they made 15 attempts to get him to be the speaker last time. So there's a very complex and delicate um, balancing system happening right now that you know this will, will basically reveal itself in the next um, several days. Either we'll get a speaker or we won't get a speaker. And, and we don't want to spend so much time. I mean, I can go into the details there. But the long and the short of it is, right now, I am not, um, uh, I'm not concluding that our chances are lost because of what's going on in the House. And the reason, the reason is, is that we still have work to do in the Senate. We still have to get out of the Senate before it is ripe that the House doesn't have itself in order. Now, if the House doesn't get itself in order and we are at a prolonged period of time without a House Speaker and we've gotten out of the Senate, that will put us in a precarious place. But you know, one of the interesting things that can be confusing, I'll try to make it simple as possible, is that we have these things called must-pass legislations. Think of them as kind of trains leaving the station. Flood insurance, um, reauthorization bills, I mean, Farm bill is one of them. I don't want to talk about farm bill, but and these must-pass pieces of legislation end up being vehicles on which smaller things can ride, like safe banking. And if the Congress was turning over next year, it would be like hail mary. We've got to get on by the end of the year because a new Congress means introducing the bills all over again. But because we are still within this, this Congress, the one eighteenth. Even if our continuing resolution takes us into March, and that is when they pass the appropriation bills, or that is when they pass these other must-pass bills, we can take a ride then as well. So it not happening by the end of this December is not fatal. It's just a moment when a lot of legislation finds its way over the finish line because of the big break and, you know. Right. Uh, yeah. So I just want to make sure that folks are not looking at that timeline as being hard it is definitely ideal, but it's not fatal. Super, super helpful. And I think there's a lot of people out there listening who just don't understand how Washington works because a lot of Americans surprisingly don't. I think it would be really helpful if you just walk us, I know you've kind of already done this, but through the next steps again. So, so as you've said, we've now, we yeah. are now waiting on a Senate vote. Let's just assume that we get that and we get out of the Senate. Yeah. That's a huge win, of course, but folks, it's not over. It's not, we're not there yet. It's not, it's not written in law. So can you take us through from assuming that happens, then where we go to the moment where safer banking, we're, we're celebrating because people are opening bank accounts and we're getting small business loans and like those tan, like that actually happens. Like I want to like give people a realistic sense yeah, yeah. so they can plan for their businesses. So I'll use the word safe banking to describe the bill that came out of the House, and I'll use the word safer banking for the bill that came out of the Senate, because that's actually what happened. So if folks remember that the way a bill becomes a law is that both the House and the Senate have to agree on the final language, and their respective chambers have to vote in favor of that final language. Where we are in the process now is that the House has voted in favor of some final language and the Senate is in kind of ripe to consider final language, but the Senate hasn't, it hasn't gotten through the Senate yet. Once SAFER gets through the Senate, which let's just presume that it does at this moment, okay? Let's just presume that. 
then you have a safer banking out of the Senate, a safe banking out of the House. Now the two chambers have to negotiate on some details. So one of the things that people ask me is like, well, within, in a Republican House, what does the Republican House say about safer banking? And I say, well, it depends on what is passed out of the Senate. If that safer banking remains pretty narrowly tailored with just a very you know, slight technical sweet tweaks and a couple of you know, provisions that have been kind of pre-negotiated, we'll be okay. If there is an additional weight on that bill, like a Christmas tree, one more ornament you know, topples over the tree, then we're gonna have a bigger problem in the House. So we've got to get through a really narrowly tailored Senate bill. Presuming we do, then the House and the Senate go into something called conference, and the word conference describes a negotiation between the two chambers. Likely what will happen here is that safe banking will be a part of a broader negotiation so that they're negotiating appropriation spending bills, they're, they're negotiating flood insurance, and that we're just a point between the House and the Senate in this bill. And the people who negotiate for that is something called four corners, which is uh, now, you know, Hakeem Jeffries on the Democrat side, whoever becomes Speaker on the House side, Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer. They call that four corners conference. And then they will connect with the, the chairman of the committees of jurisdiction, which on the House it's currently Chairman McHenry, and on the Senate it's, it's, it's Senator Brown. So Four Corners Conference is really where all that is worked out. And because it's gone through regular order, we wouldn't be expecting McConnell to tank us in the way he has in years past. That's good. Yeah, well, I will say I've never thought I'd say uh, Mitch McConnell and good news and cannabis in the, in the same sentence, but I'm going to say it today. <laughs> on October 11th, severe Senate. That's right. You heard it first. Here first. <laughs> now, I know this isn't, ex- isn't um, completely the area that, that you're focused on, but rescheduling oh. and the HHS announcement to the DEA. Yeah. I would love to have yeah. your take on this. Oh, we are so focused on it. Oh, you're so focused on it. Oh, Heck 100%. Yeah. yeah. And I will tell you. I, that's my fault. I thought you were so all in on safer that you didn't have time for this. Heck yeah. Uh, oh my God. No, we have been working on the administration's interface on this for months before the president even made his announcement. I mean, you guys know that in NCR, we have um, former head of HHS, Kathleen Sebelius, who brought in Obamacare. And we have uh, former number two at Department of Justice, Jim Cole, um, who authored the Cole Memorandum. And we have been working so closely with them and their relationships in relevant places to, one, you know, encourage the initiation of the scheduling change that happened, um, that started last year, actually a week ago Friday, up until the announcement on August 28th, um, wherein HHS transmitted um, a recommendation to DOJ. So no, we are we are all in on this, and in fact, we in NCR submitted a pretty um, meaningful uh, memo to HHS in advance of its transmission, and we're getting ready to submit the same thing to DOJ. So we are we are all in on the scheduling change. Incredible! That's it's my fault for missing missing the last few meetings. Um, <laughs> For people, we've had a couple episodes about this, but I think it would be helpful for you to explain to people what has happened so that, you know, explaining to people that the recommendation that the HHS made 
and kind of what where we go from here because you know for people that may not know yeah well i'm going to back out and i think everybody needs to make sure they understand this so the legalization of cannabis could happen in two ways one congress can change the scheduling of can- can- cannabis and legalize it like they did with tobacco and alcohol okay or there's a mechanism that evaluates and modifies scheduling changes via the administration. And that was developed by the Controlled Substances Act. It allows the president to initiate a review of a scheduling, and that starts in HHS, specifically the FDA, and the HHS and the FDA complete an eight-factor scientific analysis. And that analysis does not contemplate and doesn't care that states have programs, medical and adult use. It doesn't care about the popularity of cannabis. It doesn't care about the criminal justice implications of cannabis. It only cares about the science of cannabis. And so... Which is honestly fantastic. I mean, I think it's amazing to have... I think it will give so many Americans a little bit of peace of mind who are maybe skeptical to know that a third party that's just looking at the science, is, is focused on this. It is, Carson, but I will tell you the number of really smart people in cannabis who have kind of shamed the FDA and not scheduled and not descheduling because of the criminal justice implications, I want to be like, hey, folks, the FDA is limited by what they're required to do by statute. The statute says you've got to follow this criteria. It doesn't say you can follow any criteria. It says you have to follow this criteria. And that criteria doesn't contemplate those other things. So blaming them for something for which they have no, it's, it's, you know, outside of their approach is like, it's, 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 a, it's, not, it's not fair and it's not smart. It, it's crazy. I know exactly what you're talking about. We, um, I posted something saying what a win this was for the industry and huge opportunity to move our industry forward. And someone reposted it and said I was like the stupidest person in the cannabis industry. So people out there do not understand how government in our country works and that's on them. So I don't even care. We don't even need to think about those folks. Like we're here actually trying to move the industry forward. So hopefully they can continue having a job or a business in the industry anyway. So the, that's right. That's right. Well, and I'll say, yeah, and I'll say, and so, and so now we are in a situation where the recommendation is made. I do want to clarify for everybody listening, the reporting on the transmission from Forbes was what identified a recommendation of Schedule 3. HHS has not actually said we made the recommendation of Schedule 3. And DOJ acknowledged receipt of a transmission of a scheduling recommendation but DOJ also did not say, and we confirm that the recommendation we receive is Schedule 3. That was just in reporting. So that is a really important distinction from what the agencies themselves have said. Which is kind of nuts. Kind of nuts. The good news is we believe that um, the reasons that they didn't say anything have more to do with conciliatory um, kind of interaction between the agencies and not that that scheduling is wrong. I just want to clarify the facts. We actually do think it was a Schedule 3 recommendation. I just want to make sure folks know where we stand. Um, <laughs> exactly. So, all right. So now this has happened. And now typically when, when the HHS, assuming that they did make this recommendation, what kind of a timeline are we looking at and what happens from here? So the process, because we're back in now administrative law process, is that the Department of Justice and DEA have 90 days. And this is all, of course, like what, you know, this is, 
There's nothing in stone, but this is kind of the timeline and the trajectory that we think we are on. And during that 90 days, DEA has to accept the scientific findings, but then they conduct their own analysis and their own criteria consideration based on based you know th through the lens of their jurisdiction, and their jurisdiction has to do with you know um, illegal regular illegal activity around cannabis and diversion and um, access to vulnerable populations um, and and international obligations, and that's a five factor analysis. And the idea would be that upon that 90 days, kind of completion of that 90 days, which puts us at November the 28th, we would hope and expect that the DOJ and the DEA, DEA is within the DOJ, would um, publish an interim final rule that made a recommendation for the new scheduling of cannabis. And at that moment, the second thing that happens is that a public comments period initiates wherein the public reacts to the proposed final rule. The other thing that happens that is notable is that... How long, sorry mm -hmm. to interrupt. Yeah. So how long, how long would the, is typically the public comment period? Well, and so this is where it gets a little bit sticky. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> it could be as short as 30 days. It could be longer if there are kind of um, folks who seek to complicate it and introduce, um, you know, um, administrative law judges in being involved in, you know, like basically um, rejecting the comment period. There, there are different mechanisms that, that where this could go awry. However, I will say, so I don't want, I'm not a crystal balling that this is a perfect step one, step two, step three. There's a lot of complicating factors. So short as 30 days, it could go, you know, several months. But I do think there is something that is key here. The administration did not do this out of an accident. Nothing that we are seeing is, is like not well thought out. And if Biden initiated something that would backlash on him so negatively that he you know, should, shouldn't have uh, kind of initiated at all, his people were not going to put him in that situation, meaning... If Biden initiated a scheduling and he lands on one or a two, it is worse for him politically than if he had said nothing at all. So I don't believe, and again, this is me thinking out loud if I were, if I were the political analyst, that they would have initiated this process if they didn't think that the outcome was going to somehow benefit him going into an election year. So all of the naysayers and the skeptics, and this could go wrong, and you know, before it took this many years, and they've always come out against us, I, this, is, this is a totally different, we, we, we started this from a totally different perspective. We started this because the President of the United States initiated what his right was under statute and directed his head of HHS and his head of justice look at something that he thinks should have been, you know, should, should have a different outcome, and the outcome should benefit him in the upcoming election. So all of those things give me a real sense of hope, enthusiasm, that we are in an improved state. Not a perfect state, but an improved state. I would completely agree that we're in a, an improved state. Assuming that this does happen um, from the business owners that you talk to and interact with and they're part of your membership, how does this positively impact their business? Of course, 280E going away is is 
what I'm most excited about for, for our business, but I'm curious to hear like what changes in people's day to day. Yeah, I, I well, so and I, you're the 280 piece. I mean, businesses can start being profitable, and people who've made people who've made investments in business can see those investments move towards profitability. So that's huge. I also think it moves more people off the sidelines, because now when cannabis businesses move from a state of illegality, I mean, even though the commercialization of cannabis is still per se illegal, we'll just say that where it's not like it's like a carte blanche for all our entire cannabis industry, but but there, you do have a federal agency who has declared formally and with certainty and through the you know their own you know their own channels of of um, we'll call it adjudication that cannabis has medical benefits and so it's no longer no medical benefits <laughs> it's no medical benefits and i think that actually helps people in congress who are reluctant to advance concepts because of cannabis illegality. Now it is it still needs to be regulated and it's not, you know, a, an open gate for um, our, our, all the people who are currently in the industry and the people who want to get into the industry. But it is a relinquishing or it's a loosening or a, a recharacterization of efficacy and benefits. And those states who've been reluctant to move now will more likely move. And we have seen in Congress, even with getting um, uh, co-sponsors for safe banking and, and, and votes for safe banking, that what happens in the state does move congressional offices. So the more states that move, the more we get to move in Congress. So it really is a, we're, we're kind of all part of an ecosystem of progress and we are directly tied together. Republicans, Democrats, naysayers and supporters, we're all in this boat together. All right, I know that we're coming up on our, our 30 minutes, you are, I'm going to have to go back and re-listen to this a few times because I feel like so much of my life is people asking me what's going on, investors, board members, team members, and this is like, you listen to this three times and you can know more than 90% of, 99% of the population. So anyway, my last question for you, October 11th, 2023, what is your personal prediction for where we net out 2023 in the cannabis industry on the legislative front? It's a prediction moment. Yeah, well, and I like to be super careful. Um, I think we are in a better chance than we've ever been to get safe banking over the finish line. And us doing that contemplates that we don't have more complications in Washington than we already have. Like, uh, presuming that we can address the complications we have, and that we can, you know, get some appropriations movement. I think we get safe banking by the end of the year. And I think we get, you know, and, and there are things that will impact that success. But I think we're in we're in the trajectory to get it done. And I think we get uh, a formal recommendation that cannabis moves to a Schedule Three. And so by the end of the year, we are in the process of doing a rulemaking on that. And it's huge good news and some outstanding analysis by FDA because all that will become public. And I think we will finish this year and look into next year with a lot of, a lot more optimism around what's possible and plausible for patients and access and businesses and reform in a way that we just haven't had the luxury of over the past several years. I'm, I, I really, really, really hope you're right. And I know that for so many people listening, it's been a challenging year. And how many times have we said you need to make it through these hard times so that you and your business and your team and your product and your customers are all in the position to be able to enjoy the benefits of, um, you know, a world where cannabis is accessible to everyone. And this is just the road to getting there. You know, it's not every day that we take an industry from being 
federally illegal to legal. And Safira, you've been a huge part in making this happen. So thank you so much for everything you do for the industry. Thank you for bringing your knowledge here. And I'll plan on having you on again January 1 so that we can (laughs) recap everything that's happened. We can see where your prediction landed. Let's hope that you were right. And um, actually, I'm sorry, I want to ask one more question. I know you got to hop. Safira is literally going to meet with, you know, members of Congress, like as we get off of this call. But my last question is, if people want to, like they want to help, right? They want safer banking to go through. They want, um, they want, the cannabis to move to schedule three, what can a person working at a cannabis company, a business owner, yeah. like what can someone do? You know, the first thing is I need to make sure that everybody, all of your listeners are connected with their chambers of commerce and their local members of Congress. Invite your member of commerce to your business. And when you do that, reach out to me and tell me that you've done that. And if they're Republican, even better. Um, we have to meet lawmakers where they are. And for many of this, it is still perfunctory and preliminary education, that we are a business like any other. The most ardent Republicans against us could care less about cannabis legalization, but they think that legal businesses should have access to business services. And you have to meet them where they are. You're not going to change their mind. So no shaming lawmakers. That's number one. Educating lawmakers. Letting us know when you've met lawmakers and chambers of commerce. Sponsoring your little league team. We've got to normalize ourselves so we can seem normalized. That is one thing. If you are interested in getting involved... We have got a lot of opportunity for political and policy contributions, and that is really a case-by-case basis. We've done a terrible job as an industry of being political, meaning making contributions to campaigns, and there's a really strategic way to do it, and a strategic target group of people who would, who've been helpful, who deserve our support, and folks who we need to get to know. So those would be the things, and they can reach out to me directly on the NCR website, or they can reach out to you as you know how to find me. But this is an all-hands-on-deck moment, and we're all in the boat together. All hands on deck, all in the boat together. Sphere, thank you so much. Good luck today. I know you have a big day and a big week, so we're rooting for you, and thank you so much for everything you do for the industry. And thank you for having me on, Carson. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you again at the end of the year. Absolutely. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi and I'm the founder and host of Canachicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.